This is our final week studying with our teacher, Colette, considering the strange, even the foolish work of our God in the world. And if this is your first week joining us, it might feel a little odd to to come at the end, but don't worry, you'll get a good sense of what this whole book has been about through this sermon today as well. As we come into this final chapter, our teacher has some concluding thoughts that he wants to be sure to convey to us. First is an exhortation to remember God when you're young. Remember God when you're young because when trouble comes and trouble will come, it is then that God alone will be the source of our joy. If we neglect God in our youth, the teacher says, we will find ourselves in future years saying that we have no pleasure in them. Youthful years generate their own fleeting joys. But to remember God through those years will cultivate a lasting joy which is unhampered by time or trouble or age. Whenever I call my grandpa and I ask how he's doing, he pretty much only has one answer. I'm not sure why I ask the question anymore. His answer is, I can't complain. Which, knowing the litany of health and other concerns and challenges that he and my grandma are facing, I know isn't quite true. He could complain. I would certainly complain. But perhaps he can't complain not because there isn't trouble, but because he has developed a relationship with the God who brings joy even in trouble, that he can find pleasure even in difficult years. Difficult years come for us all, and there are a multitude of ways to understand that list of concerns that the teacher highlights. The first way is to read them quite plainly, that these are the effects of old age. Strong men are bent, and women who work with their hands have to stop their work. Eyesight dims, ears are shut, the almond tree buds, which is an image of hair turning gray. The grasshopper drags itself along, our mobility declines, and things that used to excite us just don't anymore. Our bodies will fail us. From dust we were made, and to dust we're already returning, day by day, and hour by hour. Everything is meaningless. And another way to read this passage is to read it not so much about the individual as about the cosmos, as about the world and about all creation. That a time of trouble is coming not prescribed by aged years within our bodies, but by the appointed time of our God when even guards will tremble, when even the strong will be overcome, when birds will stop their singing and danger and trouble will abound. In short, when death comes, not for any individual, but when death shakes creation itself. When all dust is but dust again, and all that is spirit returns to the one who is spirit. When everything that has happened under the sun will be seen as meaningless because it will all be gone. 
Both of these readings are very common interpretations of this passage, and like many other things in Ecclesiastes, it is probably more multifaceted than we're comfortable with. With the very same words, the teacher can remind us both of our individual mortality and the fading nature of our world, that the personal and the cosmological can be knit together so finely. And what, whichever interpretation resounds especially profoundly for you today, the lessons which we're to take from this list, the lessons we're to learn from the teacher's words, are not changed. If death is the last word, if death is the last word in our lives or in the life of the world, then the teacher is right. Everything is meaningless and death is the great equalizer Death will take away everything we've known and our place will remember us no more. If death is the last word, then we're back where we began at the very start of this series, back in chapter one of this book, grieving the foolishness of a life and a world where nothing changes, where nothing matters, where all is vapor and passing away. And if we think life is about accumulating wealth and possessions, about building a name for ourselves, about learning as much as we can or writing as much as we can or maximizing our pleasure and enjoyment, then death will certainly destroy those things, take away any success we've had in accomplishing them or realizing those kinds of lives for ourselves. Truly, if these are the lives that we're seeking to lead, we may rightly agree with the teacher that such lives have been meaningless and we've spent them in vain. But the gospel story, the gospel story that we remember this week and every week reminds us that death is not the last word. If we're not seeking wealth or recognition or pleasure, but instead seeking the God who is life, then we are assured that death will not be the last word for us, that our living will not be meaningless, and that our lives will never be spent in vain. And Colette seems to agree. At various points over the last several weeks, I have at times preached simply what Colette taught, confirmed elsewhere in the scriptures. And at times, I presented a challenge to what Colette seemed to be teaching, some better, truer thing which Jesus said or the apostles urged us toward. And you may have wondered if I lost the thread along the way. Do we agree with Colette or don't we? Is this a wise teacher or a foolish teacher? Why the back and forth? Why do we seem to agree one week and disagree the next? But Kohelet, we have to understand, is a teacher of wisdom. And wisdom traditions, especially in the ancient Near East, were not about telling you what to think. They were about engaging you in the conversation, about teaching you wisdom by participating in its discovery. Not all that Kohelet wrote would he want his listeners to agree with. He expected pushback. He desired that we would be good students and not just copy down everything he was saying, but think about it, judge it, weigh it, discern it for ourselves. Does what this teacher says match our experience of the world? 
Or indeed, does it match our experience of God? And we can be sure that this is true, that this is what the teacher was doing, because it is written in this chapter, the sayings of the wise are like goads, and like nails that are firmly fixed are the collected sayings that are given by one shepherd. Goads and nails are painful. Goads and nails are painful when they're pressed into us, and these are not the instruments of comfort for a shepherd. Or else it might say, rod and staff. But instead it says, goads and nails. The teacher has sought to goad us into seeing true wisdom, to press us with uncomfortable things that we might find comfort in its only source. Not in many books, not in endless study, but only in the fear of the Lord. Yes, the teacher who wants to bring us wisdom has has a final thought, which is the fear of the Lord. The fear of the Lord, the proverb tells us, is the beginning of wisdom. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom and 12 difficult chapters through the book of Ecclesiastes, we have finally arrived at the beginning. This final thought, these last two verses, is the beginning of wisdom. All having been heard, all the conversations and discussions about wealth and poverty, about wisdom and foolishness, weakness and strength, pleasure and trouble, all the big existential questions which plague our hearts and our minds whenever we sit with them for any amount of time, all of these things stripped down and set aside and we're left with the simple instruction to fear God and to keep his commandments, that this is the whole duty of every person. Fear God and keep his commandments. That's it. That's your whole duty. That's all we have to do. But we convince ourselves otherwise. We live lives that are not only marked by the fear of the Lord, but also the fear of the mob and the fear of tomorrow, and the fear of the unknown. There are Christians today who defy their governments and worship in secret. They fear the Lord more than they fear prison or death. And some of us worry about what our classmate or our colleague will think of us if they find out that we worship God, or worse, if we invite them to church on Sunday. There are Christians today who have given more than all that they have to be faithful to the call of God in their lives and to go to places that we can scarcely imagine. They fear God more than poverty or want. But some of us here who have much, if given the opportunity to share but a small percent of what we have, would first scoff at the idea. Because we fear tomorrow's troubles that we do not know today. Yes, there are many things which will trouble us and worry us that cause us great concern. Pandemic, famine, nakedness, danger, and sword. But Christ is ascended to the right hand of God and reigns over the whole earth. 
What have we to fear in these things? Surely it is only God's righteous judgment that should be our concern and God's gracious commands which should be our path and our delight. You need fear no other person or thing than your maker. And you need do no other thing than keep God's commands. In the fear of the Lord, you will be led into all peace and love. And in keeping his commands, you will not find legalism, but mercy, grace, justice, and holiness. If you were to read just about any chapter in the book of Ecclesiastes, you would probably be convinced that the teacher believes that human existence is all about our mortality and all about our ignorance. That these are the things which provide context for everything in our lives, everything we do, everything that we are. But now, at the end, which is the beginning, Coelette reveals that it's not mortality or ignorance that defines the human experience. Rather, it is our dependence on God. Yes, a defining characteristic of our existence as humans is that we depend on God. Mortality and ignorance only make this point that much more clear. The world is meaningless, Colette told us, so we depend on God for meaning. Seasons change beyond our control, so we depend on God to remain in control because we cannot. Money comes and goes and we do not know tomorrow's needs, so we depend on God to provide for us. There are crooked things that try as we might to straighten, we cannot fix. And so we depend on God to lead us in right paths. We are foolish and weak and lost. And we depend on God to raise up the lowly and to give hope even beyond the grave. The fear of the Lord, you see, has been the central argument of this book all along. Everything that the teacher wrestled with underscored again and again that God is God and that we are not. That instead of worrying about purpose, money, understanding, or even wisdom, we can focus instead on a right relationship with God and discover that, as Jesus said, when we seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, then all these other things will be given to us also. When we fear the Lord and we obey his commands, we find our truest purpose fulfilled. We don't need to look for purpose. We need to fear the Lord and we'll find purpose. We can withstand any change because God, who does not change, is with us. We are sure that even in earthly poverty, there are riches in heaven. And that though now we see in a mirror darkly, then we will see face to face. And though now we know only in part, then we will surely fully know. I hope you hear in that incredibly good and hopeful news. But I also know that there will remain some questions which even our individual commitments to fearing God and trying to obey his precepts will fall short of answering. Why do the wicked still prosper? Why do some who are righteous go hungry? 
Why are the poor exploited? And why has God not intervened? And the last verse of this chapter speaks to those concerns directly. God will bring every deed into judgment, including every secret thing, whether good or evil. Why do the wicked prosper? Well, they don't. They seem to. But ultimately, thank God, they do not. Because God will bring every deed into judgment, even every secret thing. Why do the righteous go hungry? Ultimately, they do not, we are assured. Because God sees their goodness and will reward them for it. Why are the poor oppressed? Well, woe to them who oppress the poor. Because the judgment of the Most High God is against them. If God is God and we are not, then we also know that we are not the judge of creation. We are merely creatures. Our duty is not to judge, but to be faithful toward God, to love God and live lives of awe and reverence before God, to obey God's commands. And when, despite fearing God, things are still hard, when we suffer at the hands of rulers or we witness oppression of another that we cannot stop, The fear of the Lord within us reminds us to depend on God all the more. We depend on God, the just judge, to make right what is still wrong, to reward the just and to punish the wicked. We remember that God will lift up those who we could never lift up, and God will make humble those who we could never humble. These are the last words of our teacher Colette pointing us at last to the fear of the Lord, which is the beginning of wisdom, and assuring us that in that relationship with God, our trust will not be misplaced, because God will ultimately set all things right. But interestingly, not only are these Coalette's last words of assurance to us, they are also Christ's last words of promise. At the end of all of our scriptures, in the final chapter of the book of Revelation, Jesus speaks and he says, Look, I am coming soon. My reward is with me. And I will give to each person according to what they have done. Blessed are those who wash their robes that they may have the right to the tree of life and they may go through the gates into the city. Outside is everyone who loves and practices falsehood. The spirit and the bride say, Come. And let everyone who hears say, come. And let everyone who is thirsty, come. Let anyone who wishes take the water of life as a gift. The one who testifies to these things says, surely I am coming soon. Those same words of comfort that Koharad offers to us in his book are the same words of promise which Jesus assures us at the end of the written word of God. Our risen and ascended Lord Jesus, the Christ of God, assures us of the truth of Colette's words. Our trust has not been misplaced in him. He is coming soon and he will judge the earth with justice and righteousness. We need do no other thing than fear him, which is to acknowledge him in all of our ways and to keep his commands. This is the duty of every person This is the place of all meaning and comfort. And surely this is 
the beginning of wisdom. Come, Lord Jesus. Amen. Natasha, in the confessional movement, shared about how turning toward God, fearing the Lord and turning toward him, is what God requires of us. And so I want to give you another opportunity to do just that. A couple of minutes of silent reflection for you to name what are the other fears that govern your life. It's not just the fear of the Lord, let's be honest, at least with ourselves. To name those other fears and then to consider what would it look like for you to trust God and depend on his provision in every place. We'll give you a couple of minutes to begin that time of prayer and reflection now. Thank you.